I sat down in my own armchair, drew it back a little from the full blaze of the fire, and began the protracted and soothing business of lighting a pipe. As I did so, I became aware that I had interrupted the others in the midst of a lively conversation, and that Oliver, and Will at least, were restless to continue. Well, I said, through the first cautious puffs at my tobacco, and what's all this? There was a further pause, and Esme shook her head, smiling over her embroidery. Come. Then Oliver got to his feet and began to go about the room, rapidly switching off every lamp, save the lights upon the Christmas tree at the far end, so that when he returned to his seat, we had only the immediate firelight by which to see one another, and Esme was obliged to lay down her sewing, not without a murmur of protest. May as well do the job properly, Oliver said, with some satisfaction. Oh, you boys. Now come on, Will. It's your turn, isn't it? No, it's Edmund's. Aha, said the youngest of the Ainley brothers, in an odd, deep voice. I could, and if I would. Must we have the lights out? Isabel spoke as if to much smaller boys. Yes, sis, we must. That's if you want to get the authentic atmosphere. But I'm not sure that I do. Oliver gave a low moan. Get on with it then, someone. Esme leaned over towards me. They're telling ghost stories. Yes, said Will, his voice unsteady with both excitement and laughter. Just the thing for Christmas Eve. It's an ancient tradition. The lonely country house, the guests huddled around the fireside in a darkened room, the wind howling at the casement. Oliver moaned again, and then came Aubrey's stolid, good-humoured tones. Better go on with it then. And so they did. Oliver, Edmund and Will vying with one another to tell the horridest, most spine-chilling tale with much dramatic effect and mock-terrified shrieking. They outdid one another in the far extremes of inventiveness, piling agony upon agony. They told of dripping stone walls in uninhabited castles, and of ivy-clad monastery ruins by moonlight, of locked inner rooms and secret dungeons, dank charnel houses and overgrown graveyards, of footsteps creeping upon staircases and fingers tapping at casements of howlings and shriekings, groanings and scuttlings, and the clanking of chains of hooded monks and headless horsemen, swirling mists and sudden winds, insubstantial spectres and sheeted creatures, vampires and bloodhounds, bats and rats and spiders, of men found at dawn and women turned white-haired and raving lunatic, and of vanished corpses and curses upon airs. The stories grew more and more lurid, wilder and sillier, and soon the gasps and cries merged into fits of choking laughter as each one, even gentle Isabel, contributed more ghastly detail. At first I was amused, indulgent, but as I sat on listening in the firelight, I began to feel set apart from them all, an outsider to their circle. I was trying to suppress my mounting unease, to hold back the rising flood of memory. This was a sport, a high-spirited and harmless game among young people for the festive season, and an ancient tradition too, as Will had rightly said. There was nothing to torment and trouble me, nothing of which I could possibly disapprove. I did not want to seem a killjoy, old and stodgy and unimaginative. I longed to enter into what was nothing more nor less than good fun. I fought a bitter battle within myself. My head turned away from the firelight so that none of them should chance to see my expression, which I knew began to show signs of my discomfiture. And then, 
to accompany a final banshee howl from Edmund. The log that had been blazing on the hearth collapsed suddenly and, after sending up a light spatter of sparks and ash, died down so that there was near darkness, and then silence in the room. I shuddered. I wanted to get up and go round putting on every light again, see the sparkle and glitter and colour of the Christmas decorations, have the fire blazing again cheerfully. I wanted to banish the chill that had settled upon me and the sensation of fear in my breast, yet I could not move. It had, for the moment, paralysed me, just as it had always done. It was a long-forgotten, once-too-familiar sensation. Then, Edmund said, Now come, stepfather, your turn. And at once the others took up the cry. The silence was broken by their urgings, with which even Esme joined. No, no, I tried to speak jocularly. Nothing from me. Oh, Arthur... You must know at least one ghost story, stepfather. Everyone knows one. Ah, yes. Yes, indeed. All the time I had been listening to their ghoulish, lurid inventions and their howling and groans, the one thought that had been in my mind, and the only thing I could have said was, No, no. You have none of you any idea. This is all nonsense, fantasy. It is not like this. Nothing so blood-curdling and becreeped and crude not so, so laughable. The truth is quite other and altogether more terrible. Hello and welcome to the Dark History's annual Christmas Campfire bonus episode. That was in chapter one of Susan Hill's The Woman in Black. It starts off with them sitting around a fire at Christmas telling ghost stories. I thought it would be fitting to stick it in. It's one of my favourite sort of classic ghost stories. I'm really happy to introduce this episode as an, was pretty much an annual tradition now. I've been looking forward to this pretty much all year, so I'd sort of thank everyone who sent their stories in. I really enjoy reading them and putting this all together. So our first story comes from Caroline, who says... I've never known what to make of this story. I'm not a superstitious person myself, but I do love a spooky yarn. My dearly missed Grandma Jess was, at age 19, one of the first four women to serve at Breeze Norton Air Force Base during World War II. She drove ambulances and four-ton trucks, at times having a race beneath a burning plane coming in overhead to rescue the young men trapped inside. I include this backstory to underline that Jess was a tough, no-nonsense Scottish lass who shared in the unbelievable bravery of the greatest generation. One of Jess's tasks was to drive airmen who had been injured, commonly disfiguring burns, to their therapy appointments at the hospital in a nearby town. Having time on her hands, Jess would typically read a book or wander the town. On a particularly warm afternoon, she climbed a small hill at the back of the hospital building. She described the hill as levelling out to a plateau at the top, where she took off her navy blue Air Force jacket, folded it to make a pillow, laid back in the sunshine and drifted off to sleep. Jess awoke sometime later, freezing cold with little idea of how much time had passed. At that moment, she spotted a male figure in the middle distance wearing dark clothing and seeming to beckon her. The figure moved oddly, as if gliding rather than walking and it kept up the gesture, imploring Jess to follow, 
as he made his way down the side of the hill. She said she didn't feel afraid and followed the path of the strange figure who had disappeared by the time she reached the lip of the hill. Jess made it back to her truck, waited for her passenger and never mentioned the strange occurrence to anyone. 30 years later and Jess is hosting her eldest daughter, my mum Norma and Norma's latest beau, a young Englishman. As they eat, drink and chat, it turns out that the young man grew up in the town where the hospital was situated during the war. Jess tells him that she came to know the town fairly well and they laugh at the coincidence. He then asks her if she's ever climbed the hill behind the hospital and she says yes, once. The young man looked a little perturbed and he asked Jess whether she had been warned not to climb the hill. He explains that the townspeople avoided the place altogether as some years before the war there had been a series of brutal murders there and the assailant was never apprehended. My grandma telling us this story when I was in my late teens so that the hair on the back of her neck stood up. She proceeded to tell my mum and her boyfriend the story of the dark figure and the sense that he had perhaps led her from danger. Jess lived to the age of 94 and towards the end of her life, typical of people that age, would tend to repeat the same well-worn stories to our close-knit family. Never once did she go back to the hill behind the hospital. Caroline, thanks very much. That was an awesome story and a total banger to start us off. So thanks very much for sharing your grandmother's story, who, by the way, sounded pretty much awesome. Next up is a story from Texas from Allison. Goliad is a small town in South Texas with a big history. The town sits by the San Antonio River and was initially settled by early Spanish explorers and then later Catholic missionaries determined to convert the local Native American population. A beautiful Spanish mission called Mission Espiritu Santo was built in 1722. The Spanish army built a fort called the Presidio La Bahia in 1747. La Bahia means by the bay since the location is close to the Gulf of Mexico. During the War for Texas Independence from Mexico in March of 1836, General Antonio Lopez de Santorana of the Mexican army ordered the execution of over 300 men at the La Bahia fort. The event is called the Goliad Massacre. A large statue sits on top of the mass grave to memorialize the deaths of the men. The fort and the mission are now historic landmarks and a part of the Texas State Park system. Visitors are welcome to tour them and also pay their respects to the mass grave. Quite a lot of people who live in the area are relatives of these men or of other soldiers who fought for Texas independence. I'm a direct descendant of two of these men, one on my father's side and one on my mother's. There are many local ghost story legends from the area due to the town's history. The Angel of Goliad is rumoured to be the ghost of a woman who managed to save around a dozen men from the massacre in 1836 by guiding them to the river and having them float to safety. Residents say she roams the grounds of the fort still searching for soldiers to save. People living near the fort say they hear bullets firing and soldiers marching during the night. Guides at the park claim they hear Native American chants near the mission. Jumping ahead to 1902, the second largest tornado in Texas history struck Goliad and killed 114 people, injuring 250 more. One of the deaths includes an ancestor of mine, Pinky Lot. She was only two at the time of her death. 
My ancestors built a home in Goliad in the early 1800s. It sat on the edge of their cattle ranch at the time, but as Goliad grew, other homes were built in the area which led to a small neighbourhood existing next to several acres of ranch land. The 1902 tornado destroyed a large section of the house, which is where two-year-old Pinky Lot was killed. In 1911, they began rebuilding that part of the house. My great-grandfather and grandfather were there on the day it was finished and they signed the date in the wet cement, September the 21st, 1921. Although my grandparents owned the house, they lived in the centre of the family ranch about nine miles away. Other relatives lived there over the years until my immediate family moved into the house in 1987, the summer before my eighth birthday. Unfortunate circumstances led to my dad, mum and two older sisters to move out from our home in the nearby town of Beeville to Goliad, only 30 miles away. The house in Goliad had been empty for a couple of years after the deaths of elderly relatives in the early 1980s. They had lived there since the 50s and they had not been very good at regular upkeep so it certainly needed some airing out. It was dishevelled and rank of years of neglect and apathy. My mum hired a local man to restore some of the wood, repaint both inside and out and replace some outdated curtains and fixtures. By the time school started in the fall of 1987, the house was close to its grand origins. It's a beautiful, large house. The ceilings are very high in most of the rooms and the original hardwood floors are lovely. The kitchen has an original marble counter, the closet's made from solid thick wood and the rooms are huge. The bedrooms often feel like the drafty, large bedrooms of a castle from a Scooby-Doo episode. There are peculiarities as well. For one, there are hidden passageways. One leads from the master bedroom closet to one of the other bedroom's closets. A built-in storage cupboard goes far into the sides of the wall and leads down between the hall and the kitchen. There's a passage behind a tiny closet in a bedroom that opens up behind the fireplace. There are also remnants of owner's past. A round brass button in the floor under the dining table when pushed with one's foot rings bells in the kitchen and the servants' quarters located behind the house. My great aunt would press this button to call for a servant to bring her whatever item she deemed necessary. When we moved in, my mum had the button disconnected as it was annoying and it would sometimes go off on its own. Even after its disconnection, I could hear it go off in the night. There were also cords attached to bells high up the walls all over the house in order for the owner to ring for servants. My mum had those removed as well. Still, we all would swear we could hear the bells ring from time to time. All of these things are pretty easily rationalised. However, one incident in the summer of 1990 is the only thing that keeps me from fully believing that ghosts do not exist. Due to its large size, my family installed intercoms in the kitchen, den and two of the bedrooms of the house so that we could communicate with each other from different areas. The intercoms were plugged into outlets and to operate them, a person had to hold down a rectangular centre button and speak into the speaker. We used them to avoid having to make the trek from one end of the home to the other or, as my mother hated, from having to scream at one another from across the house. At the start of the summer, my elder sister left for college, so it was just my middle sister, who was 16 at the time, my dad, my mum and I in the house. It was the middle of the night, around midnight to 1am, while we were all sleeping, when a noise pierced through the silent house. 
It was a high-pitched, eerie voice came through the intercoms. The childlike voice asked over and over again, Can you hear me? Can you hear me? My sister jumped out of bed and immediately ran to my parents' room. The voice had woken my parents and they are all together now, huddled in the bed, listening to the voice. My dad, rightly so, thought it was my voice on the intercom. He marched to my room to find me under the covers, trembling and unable to move from my bed. The voice continued as my dad was now looking me square in the face. The voice spoke slowly and almost seemed methodical as it waited patiently before asking again. Can you hear me? It never lost its temper, got louder or seemed frustrated. My dad carried me to my parents' room and he placed me in the bed with my mum and sister. He went to both the den and the kitchen and unplugged the intercoms. Still, the voice rang through the two remaining intercoms in the bedrooms, asking the same questions over and over. He unplugged them as well. The house fell silent and my sister and I slept on the floor of my parents' room that night, too frightened to return to our own rooms. My dad decided that the intercoms must have intercepted a message from another intercom or monitor in the area. We asked our neighbours with whom we are all familiar since Goliad is such a small town and none of them claimed to be the voice or to know where it came. The next Friday, one week later, we were again all asleep in our beds. In the middle of the night, as it had one week before, a childlike voice could be heard asking, Can you hear me? Unlike the week before, I wasted no time and sprinted to my parents' room. My sister too leapt into the bed with us. The voice repeated the question just a few times, and this time my dad did not seek out. We all waited there listening, until finally it stopped, having only lasted about a minute. The next day my dad removed all of the intercoms from the house. We never replaced them, and the voice never came back. The house continues to make various sounds though, and the doors open and close by themselves quite often. My parents blame it on the foundation and the air circulation, which it more than likely is, however, I never felt alone in the house, even when no one else was home with me. When I return home now to visit, I feel safe and warm, and I love the memories I have of the place, but still, the voice was pretty creepy. I would say so, that is a pretty creepy voice to be hearing late at night. Thanks so much for your story, Alison. And thanks for the write-up on the backstory. It was really fun, fascinating read for me. I'd never heard the place, so that was really, really cool and really appreciated. But it also serves a second purpose, because just to really weird things out, this was not the only story that was submitted for Goliad. The next one comes from Christine and sees us return to Texas. A few years ago, my husband and I decided to go camping over Halloween weekend in Goliad State Park in Texas. This Texas State Park is located about a quarter mile from Presidio La Bahia, which is on the list of the top 10 haunted places in Texas because it's the location of the Goliad Massacre. Roughly 445 prisoners of war were massacred at this location by the Mexican army during the Texas Revolution in 1836. We didn't know about the ghostly activity in the area around the Presidio when we decided to camp in the park. At the time we made the camping reservations, 
We just thought we were lucky that the park was going to be relatively empty that weekend. Only two other campsites were booked. This was going to be our first time camping at this park. It has 44 campsites, so we were a bit worried that maybe there was a reason people didn't like camping there. Maybe it was dirty or noisy, but we were willing to give it a try anyway. When we arrived on Friday evening, we were pleasantly surprised to see that the park was really clean. There is an old Spanish mission located on the grounds that is really quite beautiful. The park ranger checked us in and he told us that he had assigned us a campsite in the Vaquero tent camping area, which is a small area right beside the San Antonio River. We noticed that the other two reserved campsites were also in the same area, and when we asked why he was putting everyone so close together, he said, it makes people feel more comfortable. We thought that was a strange comment, but we didn't argue. Most campers would prefer not to be located close to other campers because people are, well, people are noisy and tents are not soundproof. While we were paying for our site, one of the other campers called to cancel their reservations and that was fine with us. We headed to campsite number four and found that the only other couple that was going to be camping that weekend was set up in site number six. As we were setting up our tent and getting the campfire started, we noticed that the other couple were starting to load everything in the back of their truck. As the sun set and it was nearing time to turn in for the night, we could hear the other couple arguing. The woman wanted to leave, but the man wanted to wait until morning. They had not taken down their tent yet, so he eventually convinced her to stay, but she was not happy about it. On Saturday morning, we got up and started breakfast. As we sat down to eat, they loaded everything up and left. We were now the only people camping in the park. We spent the morning hiking the trails and enjoying the peace and quiet. Sometime in the afternoon, the park ranger drove to our area and stopped in to check on us. I see the others have left, he said. Are you going to be okay here by yourselves? My husband told him, yeah, sure, we'll be fine. We go camping all the time. You've got nothing to worry about. The park ranger nodded his head and he said, Okay, well, here's my card. I live in town. Call if you have any problems. He handed my husband a business card and he drove away. Later that evening, my husband was cleaning the dishes whilst I packed away the food. In our years of camping, we know that once the sun starts to set, animals usually start checking the campsites out for food. Raccoons, opossums, skunks and even squirrels will make a mess trying to get to your food if they can smell it. The sun was going down fast as my husband packed away the pots and pans. I'm going to walk over to the bathroom before it gets too dark, I told him. Do you want to come? No, no, I'm, I'm going to finish putting this stuff away and put another log on the fire. Take this flashlight with you. I grabbed the flashlight and headed out. From our campsite, I had to walk up the hill to the park road, turn right and walk a little way to the bathroom, probably less than a quarter of a mile. The sun had already gone down. It was that time of night when the trees start to look like a dark silhouette against the deep purple sky. There was no moon that night. It was getting dark, but not so dark that I felt like I needed to turn on the flashlight. I could still see a dim light coming from the bathroom building down the road. As I walked, I noticed that there was one tree that was much taller than the others. I'd not noticed that earlier when we were walking around. As I got closer, I noticed that the tree seemed to be moving. 
The air around me was stagnant, but I thought maybe the breeze was being blocked by the shorter trees. The taller tree was not blocked, so maybe it was moving in the wind. Shrugging it off, I headed inside the bathroom. The bathroom building is square. The building itself is made from cinder blocks covered in stucco on the outside. There's a door on the right side of the building for the men and another door on the left side of the building for the women. Each door has a dim light above it. The lights inside are always on. The grassy area around the bathroom is mowed short. The door to get into the women's bathroom is solid and heavy. It took two hands and some muscle power to pull it open. As it opened, the hinges creaked. When I went inside, the closing mechanism slammed the door shut behind me. I didn't think much of this. It's not uncommon for state parks to set the door closing mechanisms tightly. They do this to keep the animals from getting inside. When you stepped inside, there's a double sink on the right followed by three toilet stalls. On the left is a set of small high windows near the roof, but they were closed at the time. They were so high up that you couldn't look through them without a ladder. The stalls themselves are made up of shoulder-high cinder block walls and small thin plywood doors. These doors was hung so the top of the door lined up with the top of the dividing walls, but it was nowhere about shoulder height, and the bottom was about knee height. They didn't provide much privacy, as anyone walking up could see right over the door. As with any unoccupied public bathroom, the first thing I did was look in each stool to see which one was the cleanest. Deciding that the centre stool was my best option, I confirmed that I had toilet paper and I went inside to do my business. I'd just finished up and was doing the paperwork when the thin stool door rattled. It was like someone tried to push the door open, but it was locked. I could see that there was no one standing on the other side of the door, and I knew that I was alone in the bathroom because no one would have made it through the warlord main door without me knowing. But out of reflex, I said, Just a moment. I stood up and looked around. I was alone in the bathroom. My heart was pounding and my hands were shaking as I pulled up my jeans and stepped out of the stool. I don't know why I did it, because I'm not one to believe in ghosts, but I held the stool door open for a moment and said, It's all yours. Go ahead. Nothing happened, but I still held the door, just like someone was going in there. I then looked inside the two other stools to make sure they were still empty, and they were. I tried to find a logical reason as to what would cause the stool door to rattle, but I couldn't come up with anything. There was no one else in the bathroom. The only other occupant was a tiny spider, but she stayed up near the light fixture above the sink, so I knew she didn't do it. The doors and the windows were shut, so there was no wind that could have blown down the door. After washing my hands and shutting off the water, I realised that there was no paper towels. Feeling kind of silly, I called out, just so you know, there are no towels, and I headed for the door. I think part of me just wanted to make sure that whoever or whatever was in there didn't get mad and think that I took the last paper towels. I opened the door and stepped out of the bathroom, out into the dimly lit area just outside the door, and just about jumped out of my skin. Standing in the grass, no more than ten feet away from me, was a huge black turkey vulture. He was standing right at the edge of the light cast by the dim bulb above me. When I spotted him, I jumped and yelped something unintelligible. If I had not just emptied my bladder, I'm sure I would have done it right then and there. He was not phased by my sound or movement, 
He just stood there, staring at me. I turned on the flashlight and pointed it towards him, hoping the light would make him go away, and found that there was a flock of maybe 20 turkey vultures just beyond the one that I had spotted. They were not feeding, they were just standing there. Some of them were jostling with each other, but most of them were just staring at me. I have to admit, I was more than a little freaked out by this, so I froze. Part of me wanted to go back inside the bathroom to get away from the creepy birds, but I didn't feel comfortable in there with the potential non-existent occupant. The other part of me wanted to run, but there only one way out was through a flock of birds that eat the dead. I stood frozen for a solid minute before deciding that reasoning was silly, but it would make me feel better. I called out, I don't know what you all are looking at, I'm alive and healthy. I didn't even poop in there so you shouldn't smell anything that you might mistake for being dead. I'm not... I'm not a hunter, so don't expect me to be providing your dinner. You all need to go on and settle in for the night somewhere. I'm going back to my campsite. I don't think they were impressed, they just stood there. I took a hesitant step forward and they all flew away. I pretty much ran all the way back to my campsite. I told the story to my husband who laughed about it. I don't think I slept at all that night. The next morning, my husband walked me back to the bathroom because there was no way I was going alone. The large tree I had seen blowing in the wind the night before was a huge dead tree with a bunch of vultures perched on top. The park ranger was cleaning the bathrooms when we got there. I told him about the vultures standing around in the grass the night before. He just shrugged and said, Yeah, sometimes they do that. They aren't skittish. I didn't tell him about the bathroom door rattling. I was sure he would think I was an idiot. We went back to camp in Goliad last year. Nothing creepy happened. I still don't claim to believe in ghosts, but I do still think vultures are creepy. Yeah, vultures are creepy, even Disney ones. It's a fantastic story, so thanks so much. I couldn't help but laugh at a few of the ways things were being described there. (laughs) But it was a brilliant story. Thank you very much. As I'm sort of reading through a lot of these stories, I've pretty much noticed a theme and it's something that I feel from my own experiences and that's that most of the stories are from people who kind of aren't died-in-the-wall hardcore ghost believers. They're just people who have had these kind of experiences that seem a little off-kilter or they can't explain and that sort of uncertainty is what really sticks and, and I, I definitely know that feeling. So I suppose in a way it's sort of explained by our attraction and fear of things that are always just a little bit out of our reach or something that we just can't level. And, you know, that's a theme that continues throughout all of these stories and into the next story, which is from Mara. And Mara says, The following story is something I've only told a few people. Honestly, because it scares the crap out of me, and I don't want people thinking I'm out of my mind or something. So cheers, Mara. Thanks so much for deciding to share it tonight with us all, after keeping it so close to your chest, I guess. This is Mara's story. I was raised by a mother who was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, OCD and bipolar disorder, so I've never been sure of what I can actually believe from stories she told me in my childhood. Now that I'm an adult, anytime something similarly creepy happens to me, 
I can't help but worry that I'm just starting to have the same problems that she did. Then again, maybe it's all been real all along. Growing up, my mum was constantly talking about ghosts she had previously encountered. There were a couple in her childhood home that would whisper secret conversations in the night, which she could never quite make out. There was also a particularly dark one in the building where she worked in the late 70s and early 80s. She was a dancer, so the hours she worked were late at night. All the women who worked there knew about the ghost, and all of them were afraid of it. My mum, having encountered ghosts before, would talk to it in order to pacify it. As a result of these stories, I grew up 100% believing in ghosts, but hoping to never encounter one. In 2013, I moved in with the man I thought I would spend the rest of my life with. The house he bought was only five years old, but we were to be the fourth owners within that span of time. I didn't really think much of it, but later this fact crept into my mind, causing me to think that maybe the other owners had had a reason for moving out so quickly. Soon after moving in, we adopted a puppy, and about six months later she started acting weird. We would come home and she would cower as if I was going to hurt her, and she'd hide under the bed. At her next vet appointment, I mentioned this, and after examining her behaviour, the vet said she thought my dog had been abused before we had gotten her. However, this never really made sense to me as she hadn't been exhibiting this behaviour when we first got her. A month or so later, I was in our spare room when I heard her dog, Maggie, growling in the kitchen. Her growl intensified and it ended in a painful yelp which sent her running my direction and hiding behind my chair. I was alarmed as I'd never seen her do this before, so I slowly crept into the large open space that was our kitchen, dining and living room. As we walked in, Maggie stared up at the ceiling, shaking with fear. I didn't see anything, but was a bit curious as to why she was afraid of that particular spot on the ceiling. Over the next few days, Maggie continued this behaviour, and I would often find her tiptoeing frightfully past certain spots on the walls or the ceiling, continuously staring at them as though afraid of something was there. I've heard before that animals can see supernatural things better than we can, so I was already scared that this is what was happening. One day, we were home alone and she was exceptionally scared. For some reason, I started to get scared myself. I texted my friend who had mentioned before that she knew a medium and asked her about it. She told me to imagine a bright white light enveloping the house and killing anything dark. Sitting on the couch, I did as she said and Maggie completely freaked. She yelped as though being hit. She bit at the air and she snarled. Alarmed, I grabbed my phone and dashed out the front door with Maggie. As soon as we were out of the house, Maggie calmed down and I felt at ease again. I called my friend and she asked if I had felt threatened whilst inside the house. I know it seems crazy, but I had. After telling her this, she got a hold of the medium she knew, who directed me to place a raw egg in each corner of that room for a full 24 hours, after I was to bury them in the yard. After I'd calmed down, I decided that maybe I was just being paranoid and I continued about my day. But as the days went on, I still had this feeling as though something was lurking in the house. Eventually I did what the medium had said regarding the eggs. I told my boyfriend who had seen Maggie growl at random spots many times and whilst he thought it was a bit weird, he told me to do whatever would make me feel better. Once I had buried the eggs, the house felt immensely different. 
I was no longer scared and Maggie no longer growled at the ceiling and walls. The following April I came home to find my boyfriend, now my fiancé, unresponsive on the bed. Emergency teams worked on him for what seemed like hours, but they were unsuccessful. After the autopsy, they told me he had likely been gone hours before I had even arrived. I stayed away from the house a few nights, and when I returned, understandably, it just wasn't the same. But I'd felt that feeling in the house before. I felt as though something was lurking, waiting to strike. Particularly, my bedroom felt unsafe. I chalked it up to grief and paranoia, and I tried not to be home alone. Soon, my sister moved in. She and I both started having dreams in which my fiancé would visit us, and I started toying with the idea of seeing a medium. I'd been raised Christian, so talking to mediums was highly frowned upon, but it was still very tempting. A co-worker of mine recommended one who she had used to contact her parents, who had died when she was in high school. Eventually I decided to make an appointment to speak with her, and I reserved my appointment by putting down a deposit of $20. On my way home I stopped at my mum's house to tell her. After hearing that I had planned to talk to a medium, She had me listen to a podcast that she had just heard regarding demons, soul ties and familiar spirits. At this point, my mum had abandoned her meds and become incredibly religious. All the same, I listened to the podcast with her. It mentioned that sometimes demons or familiar spirits would pose as our past loved ones and come to us in our dreams, trying to lure us. The whole thing scared me, as my sister and I had both been having dreams of my fiancé. The podcast ended with a prayer that was supposed to cast out any ungodly forces. I decided to try it out at home, casting anything evil out of my house. Nothing weird happened, but I did stop having the dreams. A couple of days later, I remembered the appointment I had made with the medium, and I was torn as to whether or not I should go. The day of the appointment, I was on my way to work and I prayed, asking God to send me a sign if I should go or not. As soon as I thought the word, Amen, a thought popped up into my mind that I had a meeting for work and that I couldn't go to the appointment even if I wanted to. That was all the sign I needed. I immediately called and cancelled my appointment. That night, I told my sister about all of it. As I was talking, she started to wince. She explained that not long ago, possibly the same night I had said the prayer to get rid of whatever was in the house, she had had her last dream of my fiancé. They had been close when he was alive, and she had looked up to him as a brother. In her dream, however, she and I were standing inside the front door of our house, and he was in the front yard trying to get in. It was as if there was a force field keeping him away, as he couldn't even step up onto the porch, and he was furious. He was throwing things at me, trying to force me to let him in, and my sister said she even got the feeling that he was trying to kill me. This floored me. I don't want to sound crazy, although maybe I am, but this convinced me even more that all of the weird things that had been happening were at the hands of some malicious force. The following spring I bought my own house on the other side of the city. Now Maggie only growls at the neighbour's dogs and I feel completely safe from whatever had been plaguing me. I've never been back to the house my fiancé and I shared and I refuse to even drive by it. For some reason, I feel as though something is there waiting for me to come back thanks so much for your story Mara that was really horrifying 
and I absolutely definitely would not ever go back to that house ever even if you paid me I mean if I was you so yeah I fully understand <laughs> but yeah really appreciate it so th- thanks so much for sharing that with us and you know yeah really really appreciate it so next and last up is a story from a really good friend of the podcast who I name only as one chap in the wilderness as I know he's preferred a, a degree of anonymity in the past so this is his story In the summer of 2011, I had an experience that ultimately led me to investigate the preternatural. I'm not a ghost hunter exactly, although that sometimes is a part of it. That summer changed my perspective and it forced me to recognise what I had always really known. I started dating a girl late that spring and met her mother shortly after. She is a sweet woman and she instantly liked and approved of me. She said she knew I was a good person because she could read my energy and that I was sensitive in that I could recognise certain energy and that this energy was attracted to me. I crooked an eyebrow and was like, yeah, okay, alrighty, and I just carried on with my day. I was pretty fresh out of the army at the time and I just moved into the first place of my own. It was an old, fairly run-down trailer with a small overgrown yard. The trees and bushes were so bad that I couldn't walk through them at first. Also, there were beautiful flowers mixed in everywhere. It was clear that someone had once cherished and loved this property. It was, in its own little way, beautiful. That being said, it made me feel uneasy. The place creeped me out, but it was cheap. The trailer was set on a concrete foundation with an unfinished basement. The only access was through a trapdoor in the second bedroom down very steep and very narrow stairs. It was dark, dank and it always sort of creeped me out. I always had trouble sleeping there. I slept mostly in the front room because I was scared of my bedroom. Every time I slept in that room I had extremely violent nightmares. Several times when I slept in the bedroom I would hear whispers in my ear. I mean I could literally feel someone leaning down to my ear. I just knew that someone was there, although the words were always just beyond what I could make out. I was scared to even go down the hall. Once, casually walking down to the bathroom, out of the corner of my eye, I swear I seen a man standing in front of the window. He was tall and old, wearing a brown suit. I always felt that I was being watched. I heard sounds like someone hit the side of the house and the walls, and when I ran outside many times looking for someone, but there was just never anyone there. Always out of the corner of my eye, I would catch something black watching me, always just silently watching. This went on for weeks, getting worse and worse. I told the girl I was with all about it, of course, and she told her mum. I truly thought I was losing my mind. Across the hall from the second room was a large window. I started down the hall one night for the bathroom, I made three steps to the doorway of the second bedroom and in a blink, a hand was on my head pushing me hard to my left and I was off my feet pushed hard into the window. I hit my head on the pane and put my left arm through it. I was knocked out for a minute and I needed eight stitches for my arm. To this day I still have the scar. My girlfriend's mum asked to come over. 
We had talked about what was going on as it had happened. She had told me that she was a medium, as well as her friend, who later I became good friends with, and she said that they might be able to help. They came over and they did help. A lot happened, so I'm going to try and summarise what they found. The property was bought by a couple in 1978. It was meant to be their retirement home. They didn't have a lot and they made the best of it. The woman loved gardening, hence the jungle outside. They passed away sometime in the 90s. The woman first in the trailer and the husband shortly after. The woman was at the house looking after the jungle and flowers. Recognising that I could sense her, you know, I don't know what it is I do. I just sense, I guess, or, I don't know, I just know or feel. Anyway, she had pestered me to look after her garden and later tried to thank me for doing just that. The husband, thinking I was keeping his wife there, was mad at me. He pushed me and was the dark whatever that I had seen all the time. He wanted me to leave. All of this came from the psychic women after several visits talking to the ghosts of the old woman. We did several things, well, the lady did several things, to move the woman on, and they showed me how to protect myself and other things to keep safe. I planted some new flowers for the woman. Things became calm. I bought a tiny spooky house and moved that October. A year or so after I moved, I looked through old newspapers and found that those ladies were right as far as the couple that lived there and their deaths. A few years ago, that little property was levelled and it's now a lot for a hardware store. I cruise by there once in a while and leave a flower on the edge of the fence. The girlfriend and her mum are gone a long while now, but the mum's friend and I are close and we help out people when asked if we can. I don't know what I believe. I trust what I feel and what I see. Humans are amazing. When you're scared but don't know why, pay attention. Your mind or more often your body is telling you something is wrong and you should trust it. Everyone is sensitive. Hair standing up on the back of your neck. You feel like you're being watched. It could be a wendigo. No joke, a year and a half ago we had a case dealing with a woman that lived in the woods in the middle of nowhere. She swore up and down that there was a werewolf hunting her. There was something there, but that's all I can say. People sometimes ask to tag along looking for a thrill. The answer is always no, of course. There are a lot of groups that skulk around cemeteries for them who they can ask to go with. But I tell them earnestly, be careful. You can't unsee what you've seen and you can't unknow what you know. All of this falls under the head in that the world is more than we know. I'm happy for that because how boring would it be if it wasn't? Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. And thanks so much for your story. And I think it's pretty much as good a note as any to wrap this episode up. So thank you so much, everyone, for your stories. I hope you all listening enjoyed it as much as I did putting it all together. And I'm going to go and join in with the sentiments in that last sentence of the last story and say, Merry Christmas, everyone. Wishing you all the best. Happiness and health for you and yours this holiday. Sleep tight.